In today's Vet Girl podcast, Dr. Justine Lee and I are going to be going over a few important topics that we're really excited about. Not too long ago, we were pleased to be able to attend, at least online and Justine Live, the 2018 Hills Global Symposium, which focused on aging pets. It was held in Lisbon, Portugal at the end of April, and it was a great, unique 24-hour live stream experience where, unfortunately, if you did miss it, you can still get it online right now. So we're really excited to review some of the amazing topics that were uh, discussed and reviewed at the Hills Global Symposium 2018. Justine, welcome. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be able to discuss some of these key topics with you. I'm going to start out if that's okay. I'm really excited. I took some amazing notes on these lectures and it really had me very excited. And the first topic that I want to talk about is on osteoarthritis, a very common issue, a mobility issue that we see in our older dogs and our older pets. And this was a topic where Dr. Christopher Tan gave a ton of important information. And many of us do recognize common osteoarthritis in our older pets. We see hip disease, stifle disease, et cetera. And Dr. Tan spoke about this more in a a global concept, the, the concept of degeneration. As you age, your body isn't what it used to be. We all recognize this as we get out of bed in the morning and everything is, is creaky and cracky and, and we uh, have joint pain and discomfort. So we recognize this ourselves, unfortunately, as we age degeneration over time. But what about our pets? We see this with diseases such as intervertebral disc disease, otherwise known as IVDD, which is caused by degeneration in the spinal column. The most common type of IVDD we see is that Hansen type 2 intervertebral disc disease that involves that gradual degenerative process that leads to chronic bulging of the inner disc material into the spinal canal and then subsequent pressure on and compression of the spinal cord. To reinforce this degenerative process in the body as our pets age, another example given was the degeneration of our cranial cruciate ligament. We commonly see cranial cruciate ligament tears in our pets as they age, especially those older and obese large breed dogs. We know that IVDD is common in certain breeds, the dachshund as an example, or our cruciate ligament disease with our middle-aged to larger breed dogs. But then he introduced a new disease or a disease that I don't think about commonly, but one that we're seeing more and more of. But we should know about this. That's proximal intertarsal subluxation. It's a disease that was first described back in the 1960s. What should you know about proximal intertarsal subluxation? In these cases, there's typically no history of major trauma, and it's gradual in onset. The most common breeds we see this in are the Shetland Sheepdogs, Collie, and Collie Crossbreeds. On examination, what you see is they come in with that plantigrade stance, which can be variable as well as variable in their degree of lameness. On examination, you see an instability of the foot. It's easy to reduce and it's non-painful. Sometimes you can see a swelling present in that area as well. So a disease that you and I may not think about as commonly as our cruciate or hip disease, but is one that we're seeing more of and one that we believe has a degenerative process. If we're thinking about this disease and that Collier, Shetland Sheepdog Cross that comes in, 
how are we going to make that diagnosis aside from that plantigrade stance and the clinical signs of that instability, easily able to reduce and non-painful presentation? So diagnosis is made with a combination of the exam, which we just talked about, and radiographs. So why do we take radiographs? Well, we want to make sure that we're ruling out other diseases. We want to make sure, for example, there's not a fracture or another cause for this instability and plantigrade stance. Dr. Tan then went on to describe some really interesting research into this disease, how they are diagnosing it, and importantly, how they are best surgically correcting this problem. There's still a lot to learn about degenerative processes in the body, but this was a fantastic lecture on degenerative clinical problems, diseases that we should think about, and this new disease, which we should really think about more in certain breeds, again, like our Shetland sheepdogs, our collies and collie crosses that come in with that plantigrade lameness type stance. If you want more information about this disease, as well as degeneration as our pets age, I would highly recommend that you check out Dr. Tan's lecture. All right. Great information. So important, especially as we see a growing population of geriatric pets. And this was so important and applicable to me because my own 19-year-old cat had both chronic kidney disease and severe osteoarthritis. And I think we all know as veterinary professionals that osteoarthritis is dramatically underdiagnosed or undertreated in cats. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the importance of nutrition when it comes to the management of chronic kidney disease. That same 19-year-old cat that I just talked about had chronic kidney disease for years. And unfortunately, I protein restricted him probably too early in life. This was before iris scoring. And unfortunately, because of that protein restriction, he ended up losing a significant amount of muscle mass. So what I wanted to talk about next were two key lectures that were actually presented at the Hills Global Symposium in 2018 about protein restriction. It's less important in early stage chronic kidney disease. And I also wanted to talk about phosphate restriction being vital for our chronic kidney disease patients. So let's start with protein restriction first. Dr. Angela Witzel from the University of Tennessee lectured about how nutrition is the most important aspect of managing chronic kidney disease. The goal of protein restriction in renal diets is clear. The goal is to reduce and decrease the nitrogenous waste products and minimize the amount of protein entering the glomerular filtrate. However, protein restriction as dietary management for chronic kidney disease has become increasingly controversial. So it was nice to see Hills addressing this at this symposium. It's the quality of the protein, the level of the protein that's important to consider. This is especially important in cats because if we protein restrict too early, it may contribute to the loss of muscle mass. There is no optimal level of dietary protein, the quality of protein, or rather of amino acids is more important than the quantity. Protein restriction is especially important in cats with advanced chronic kidney disease. So if you are looking at the IRIS website and your feline patient falls within stage three or four, those are patients that we should be protein restricting. It's less important in the early stages, IRIS stages one and two, when the cats are not yet uremic. So again, if they're not uremic, we don't want to protein restrict them yet. At the early stages of chronic kidney disease, phosphorus restriction is probably more important. The good news is that early stage kidney disease diets are now available with moderately restricted protein, but low phosphorus and sodium and moderately high omega-3 fatty acids 
fat, and potassium content. Compared with other therapeutic renal diets, most over-the-counter pet foods contain very high levels of phosphorus, which can have a potentially severe impact on our chronic kidney disease patients. In patients that have chronic kidney disease, we also want to avoid raw food because these probably contain much too high of a protein and phosphorus content. Now, when we look at phosphate restriction, this is vital for chronic kidney disease. Dr. Harriet Syme at the Royal Veterinary College, University of London, said that chronic kidney disease is the most common cause of death in cats over five years of age. It's associated with a range of secondary changes, including bone changes, where the mineral and bone disorder, formerly known as renal secondary hyperparathyroidism, can take effect. In patients with chronic kidney disease, both the parathyroid hormone, what we commonly call PTH, and fibroblast growth factor, or FGF23, are responsible for the renal-induced high serum phosphate levels. Both parameters go up as renal function declines. In fact, FGF23 is a good indicator for survival. Phosphate probably plays an important role in chronic kidney disease than previously thought. And again, restriction in dietary phosphate intake is really important because it's been shown to reduce both PTH and FGF23 concentration in cats. Dr. Syme stated that low-phosphate diets designed for feeding to patients with chronic kidney disease have been associated with improved survival times in both dogs and cats. All right. With that, I'm going to pass it on to Garrett to talk about feline diabetes. Thanks, Justine. The next topic I'm going to talk about, as Justine said, is feline diabetes. And there was an amazing lecture by Dr. Katie Lott, who's an internal medicine specialist. While there are different types of diabetes, in our feline patients, we focus on a relative insulin deficiency, where there's a reduced tissue sensitivity to insulin. Interestingly, we can see remission of diabetes in cats, whether it's permanent or temporary, remission is possible. Dr. Lott discussed that early intervention is very important when trying to achieve this goal, remission. Because of the influence of glucotoxicity on progressive beta cell failure, early effective glycemic control is critical for reaching diabetic remission and insulin is the most effective way to achieve this goal. In regards to the types of insulin out there, Glargine, a long-acting insulin analog, has received a lot of literature attention pertaining to diabetic remission and seems to offer the best chance of remission for our feline patients. Diet may also play a role in remission. A low-carbohydrate, high-protein diet has been shown in multiple studies to be associated with improvement in glycemic control and a higher rate of remission when compared to traditional high-fiber diets. Cats with diabetes mellitus should be transitioned to one of these diets if it isn't a concern related to any concurrent disease. Owners of obese or overweight cats should also be counseled on weight loss and specific caloric recommendations. The important question brought up here by Dr. Lott is, what are we really trying to achieve with diabetic management and monitoring? Monitoring can be done by owners at home and management at the clinic. Owners can monitor for thirst, appetite, or weight loss, as well as negative issues and concerns such as vomiting, lethargy, or even decreased appetite. Dr. Lott recommended not changing insulin dose based on urine glucose reading, but reminding owners that these readings are only one point in time and any abnormalities would prompt further evaluation rather than titrating insulin at home. Dr. Lott also discourages excessive insulin changes when a diabetic patient is first diagnosed, 
unless there are side effects such as low blood sugar. She often recommends an insulin dose is used and kept the same for 7 to 14 days before performing a glucose curve and determining if the insulin dose needs to be changed. Dr. Lott then goes on to highlight both the positives and limitations to intermittent glucose monitoring with curves as compared to continuous glucose monitoring. If you want not only a great review of feline diabetes, but an insight to the benefits of continuous glucose monitoring and how it can benefit your practice and your patients, I strongly encourage you to watch this complete webinar. Thanks so much, Garrett. The next thing I wanted to talk about is the importance of vitamin D. And I'm based out of Minnesota in the Twin Cities where we're covered in snow six months of the year. So we all have hypovitaminosis D. You probably have read about how the majority of humans out there right now have low levels of vitamin D. So a medical doctor may be supplementing this, but it's important to consider the link between vitamin D and renal disease. Dogs and cats require dietary supplementation with vitamin D due to an ineffective synthesis of vitamin D3 in the skin. Vitamin D and its metabolites play a role in many organs and in a multitude of disease processes. Dr. Valerie Parker from the Ohio State University talked about this at the 2018 Hills Global Symposium. She reiterated that the calcium phosphorus homeostasis plays an important role in renal disease, specifically vitamin D. Vitamin D has been shown to correlate with the stage of kidney disease, decreasing with increasing iris stage. So again, really important to stage your chronic kidney failure, dogs and cats, appropriately with the iris website. Dogs with kidney disease have altered vitamin D metabolism, and it's likely multifactorial. In dogs, chronic kidney disease progression and mortality is associated with hypovitaminosis D, increased PTH, and increased FGF23. Yet, Dr. Parker stated, it's not so easy as just to supplement vitamin D. That's not the easy answer. While the goal of supplementation with any form of vitamin D should be to increase serum calcidiol and calcitriol, optimum treatment is still unknown. There's a lot of key research that's still going on in this area, so I'm excited to wait to find out what these results show us. Thanks, Justine. Another great talk that I listened to was by Dr. Eva Furrow, who is a board-certified internist, and she talked about the importance of nutritional management in canine urinary disease. While we know the common stones being struvite and oxalate, Dr. Furrow started the lecture with a good point. So you can see a stone on x-ray, dot, dot, dot. Even if a stone is there, what makes a patient a good candidate to consider a dissolution diet? And more importantly, what are the risk factors for a struvite stone formation to begin with? Easy enough. The biggest risk factors for struvite stone formation is infection, specifically a UTI with urease-producing bacteria, examples being staph or proteus. If we pick the right case, it's kind of cool. They can dissolve on an average of two to three months. Remember, if there's an infection, we should change the diet. But unfortunately, a diet change alone is not going to completely resolve the issues. You ideally should perform a urine culture and sensitivity and then provide appropriate antibiotic therapy to eliminate the underlying infection. The question remains, if struvite stones are easily treated with diet, 
why did the University of Minnesota Stone Analysis Lab receive over 26,000 stone submissions last year, knowing that the ACVIM consensus statement on this issue states that, in most cases, they should be medically managed without the need for cystotomy. That's a lot of stone submissions for a case that should be medically managed. So while surgery can be satisfying, it creates risk, right? Incomplete stone removal, nidus of infection left behind, surgical and anesthesia complications, et cetera, et cetera. And remember, surgery doesn't treat the UTI. You need to treat that infection. So even if you do perform surgery, remember, after surgery, it's still recommended for a dissolution diet and appropriate antibiotic therapy. The bottom line, how does Dr. Furrow treat these cases? Provided there's no need for immediate surgery, specifically an obstruction or a massive single cystolith, Dr. Furrow submits a culture and sensitivity and sends the client home on a dissolution diet and antibiotics. Typically, she'll send them home with one week of antibiotics. Why only one week? Because before that week is up, she's going to have the results of that urine culture and sensitivity, and that will help determine if the antibiotics that she prescribed are correct or if they need to be changed. If they need to be changed, she will do that. If they can be continued, great. She'll then send them home with a longer course of medication, typically for at least four to six weeks of medication of that antibiotic. She also, at that one-week recheck, checks in with the owner. Any concerning signs of illness that would warrant surgery rather than more time, being medications and diet. But if they are doing well, appropriate antibiotics given for at least four to six weeks, along with the diet change, she'll recheck the client again in four to six weeks to see how they're doing. So really, a great way to try to avoid potentially a costly and problematic surgery. And we should be thinking, what is the underlying cause? Is there infection? Should I be treating that with antibiotics and a stone dissolution diet? So a great lecture by Dr. Furrow. Strongly encourage you to check out her complete lecture if you'd like more information. Thanks, Garrett. Again, I wanted to direct everyone. A lot of these videos and content are available at cliniciansbrief.com backslash 2018 Hills Global Symposium. So just put it into that Google browser and you'll be able to get this access to all these talks, all these webinars and proceedings totally free. What I wanted to talk about next is the scary word RAS. We all remember RAS or the Renin-Angiotensin system from veterinary school. But I wanted to talk about how we can modulate this in the patient with chronic kidney disease and why this is important. Dr. Harriet Syme from the Royal Veterinary College, University of London, discussed this at the Hills Global Symposium. The renin angiotensin system, or again, what I'll call RAS from now on, is a major regulator of fluid balance and blood pressure, both of which are important in the management of chronic kidney disease patients. Angiotensin II, generated by the angiotensin-converting enzyme ACE, leads to aldosterone secretion, vasoconstriction, oxidative stress, and sodium retention. These classic RAS effects increase intraglomerular pressure and actually worsen renal disease. Dr. Syme talked about how modulating the RAS system, either with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, what are often called ARBs, 
is consider the standard of care in managing dogs and cats with primary glomerular disease. This is important and again reiterates why we need to follow the iris staging protocol carefully to identify if our patients have proteinuria. An angiotensin receptor blocker, Talmasartan, has been marketed recently for the treatment of renal proteinuria in cats. Although a study showed that Talmasartan was non-inferior to benazapril in reducing proteinuria, the question remains whether angiotensin receptor blocker treatment is more effective than ACE inhibitors in prolonging the life of cats and dogs with chronic kidney disease. So stay tuned for this as more research comes out. Thanks for tuning in as Garrett and I discuss some of the key findings at the 2018 Hills Global Symposium. If you weren't able to join in Lisbon, Portugal, you could watch it totally free. It was live streamed thanks to Clinician's Brief, and all the videos and proceedings are available for Racerproof CE. Just go to cliniciansbrief.com backslash 2018-hills-global-symposium to get access to all this CE.